Almost one in three public school students were chronically absent during the last school year. Is this due to the pandemic or is there another indicator of the failing education system in America? Our friends at Benedictine College are offering two new master's degrees in classical education as part of their Transforming Culture in America plan. And finally, the New York Times released a piece addressing the standardized testing debate, but also completely forgetting to mention CLT. We're discussing more of this today. Uh, my name is Soren Schwab, and this is Office Hours with Jeremy Tate. Welcome back to the Anchored Podcast, and thank you for joining us for episode three of our new series, Office Hours with Jeremy Tate. I am here at CLT headquarters in beautiful Annapolis, Maryland, with none other than our founder and CEO, Jeremy Tate. Jeremy, how are you today? Hey, doing well, Soren. Good to be with you. Likewise, likewise. Well, let's start with this first story. There's a, actually a couple of articles just recently published uh, about chronic absenteeism in schools. Now, I don't think that's a, a new issue per se. But it seems like it has intensified, especially throughout the pandemic. And just to throw some numbers at you and, and get your get your response, it, it seems like almost one in three public school students, about 15 million kids were chronically absent during the last school year, a staggering 14.7 million school kids. That is, that is a large, large number. And that is uh, across kind of demographics, across states. Some of the leading states, uh, it seems like, are, are Michigan. And on some East Coast states, but but in general, just soaring absenteeism, which of course is contributing to learning loss at alarming rates, intensified, like I said, uh, by the pandemic. You've been obviously you've been in the in the school system. You've been following this. What are kind of your your thoughts on that? Yeah, so when I was reading this, I was thinking back to my my days working in New York City, and every day, every day at about eleven o'clock, ten thirty, uh, truancy officers would show up with like thirty or forty of our kids. They didn't come to school and they were just running around the neighborhood doing whatever, you know. This has been an issue that's been going on for a long time uh, and it, it is a, a disaster. Some of the, the school districts that they reported on, it's not equal, you know. Uh, so, some school districts not really impact, but especially low performing and it continues to accelerate. Yeah. And, and I mean, we, we've heard a lot about learning loss just in general throughout COVID. And of course, part of that was, well, kids were not in school. They weren't learning, right? And now we're adding this, 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 you know, chronic absenteeism to the scenario. And of course, it's going to impact, you know, lower income communities, you know, communities with maybe with, with single parent households, where there is not as much support, understandably so, from home. What are you thinking? I mean, are we going to see more of this in the future? And, and what, what are maybe some responses that we can take to that, that you think might be might be helpful. Yeah. You know, I think the articles we read to her were a couple of things that were missing. You know, one is, you know, the classical schools we work with, the Catholic schools we work with, they have a position about parental involvement that's totally different mm-hmm. than what I experienced working at Progress High School in New York or even working at Broadneck High School here here in Maryland. And they believe that the parent is the primary educator, the first and primary educator of their own kids. Parental buy-in. And this whole breakdown, this whole attitude of we're the experts, we educate your kids, that has eroded parental involvement from taking ownership as the primary educators. Even if what you're doing as the primary educator is selling the value of school, talking about it, 
talking about the importance of being on time, but we're seeing now this generational impact of essentially outsourcing parenting, right? The formation, which is what education is, can never be outsourced. Uh, We've tried to do that, and now we're kind of reaping what we have sown, and it's showing up in kids that aren't showing up to school. The other thing, Soren, that's behind this is the lack of wonder, right? We've we've heard Michael Ortner, our our dear friend here at CLT, describe a lot of schools as as soul-crushing, crushing the wonder, beating the wonder out of students, right? When students genuinely love to go to school, when they can't stop talking about it when they go home, when their imagination, when they're growing their moral imagination, they're going to have good uh, attendance rates. I think a lot of the measures of, you know, like I saw in New York, let's just get more truancy cops to round these kids up and bring them to this place that they hate. It's a Band-Aid solution. Yeah, well, it's interesting because one of the articles was talking about that that some schools have turned to private companies now for a quote, reimagined version of the truant officer, uh, and then another quote-unquote solution, uh, not at all in line with what you're, what you're saying, um, is that because of these challenges, more than 900 public school districts across the, across the country have introduced, get this, a four-day school week to combat yep. this issue. So kids are not coming to school, so let's just make it official that there's only a four-day week, so at least one of those days we don't have to count them absent, right? Yeah, you know, I, I thought there was a parallel here. We we talked about, you know, post-COVID, a lot of companies were trying to figure out, we, we had what we what they called the great resignation, kind of in the middle of COVID, where a lot of people who had been in companies for years said, I'm done, I'm out of this. So employers were thinking, how do we engage? How do we retain? And they tried all kinds of creative things, even the four-day work week. And none of those failed, none of those really worked. And what they found out was that engagement and buy-in and, and meaning, right? If students believe that they're being formed in the right ways, if they believe that this time is invaluable, that is going to impact attendance rate. I think that's what's being missed by kind of the mainstream education approach to fix this crisis. And it is a crisis. Yeah, really well said. Well, let's get to our second topic, a bit more hopeful, a bit more exciting. Yes, Benedictine. To, yes, Benedictine. I know you've, I, I've, I've had the pleasure of visiting. I know you not too long ago visited Benedictine College in Atchison, uh, Kansas, they announced that the college will offer two new master's degrees in classical education, accepting applications now for enrollment in summer 2024. One of them is a master of arts in classical education for teachers. The other is a master of arts in classical leadership for school administrative leaders. So I guess your response to that, what does it say about one Benedictine? What does it say, too, about just our classical renewal movement? Yeah, Soren, you know, at first, I, I'm just so excited about all things Benedictine. I, I think the college president, uh, that it, one of the ones I've been most impressed with is, is President Minnis at Benedictine. He's been in the role now for 20 years. When he came, Benedictine was about 800 students. Now it's about 2,400 students. You get on campus, and it is, it is everyone, student, faculty, are all missionally focused. I mean, it is absolutely beautiful, this revitalization of spirituality that you have on the campus and the, the educational patrimony of the church, which is classical education. I think that that's what is kind of part of this that's so interesting about launching these new programs. It's a lot of conversations, and we've been part of these. In the Catholic world, of, are we behind classical? Should we call it classical? Should we call it the liberal arts? What exactly is this? And of course, the story is that the church played an invaluable role in preserving and passing down the text that everyone enjoys now in the classical renewal movement. Benedictine is really stepping up as a leader 
and owning this, which I think is so exciting. The other part is when you tour schools and you visit more K-12 schools than I do, but, but what do you hear? You sit down with the head of school and say, what, what are your greatest needs? What keeps you up at night? It's staffing. They need yeah. great teachers. And we've met with, with people, I think of Keith Nix, our dear friend at Veritas, right? He says that sometimes having a teaching certificate is actually a liability, right? From some of these ed schools, it means that the teacher has ingested a bunch of bad ideas for four years. They're not ready to go into a classical school. And so Benedictine is meeting a dire need and, and others before that. And we should give a shout out here, of course, to our dear friends uh, at Gordon, at the University of Dallas, that at Templeton, that have been stepping up to fill this need uh, in a big way. Yeah, yeah. Amen to that. I mean, it's it's you're right. I mean, I visit a lot of K-12 schools and that's that's the number one, right? Like, Soren, where, where do I go to, to hire teachers that, that get it? You know, they, they want it and they get it. Um, and you're right. Sometimes going to teacher colleges, teacher certifications doesn't really help the cause. And so I love that. Obviously, from a business standpoint, I think it's brilliant from Benedictine, right? They're, they're, they're meeting this demand. But also one of the top Newman Guide schools, great Catholic higher education institution saying classical education is what we should serve and support, you know, in the long yep. term. I think it's just a really, really positive message that they're sending to 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 catholic education in general so very very excited about that oh and, and, and one more note on this I, we just talked yesterday so we're into our, our dear friends over benedictine and they're actually hosting this coming summer icle our good friends over the institute for catholic liberal education mm-hmm. and they they really do want to make benedictine a leader in this movement and, and that's why they're hosting this and i, I think for folks that are attending that we're going to learn a lot more about these two new programs uh, as well which really are designed for teachers even already teaching. You can get this master's of Benedictine in classical education as a current teacher uh, and get that master's degree. Yeah, and of course, we'll, we'll link some information in the, in the show notes as well for folks that want to learn more about this. And then lastly, interesting New York Times article. I think, I think the CLT office it went around in, in the Slack channels and we were kind of torn because it was a good article, but also left out some important things. So it's a New York Times article called The Misleading SAT Debate. And obviously, Jeremy, we, we have talked about this a lot, even on, in, on office hours about test optional, right? And the, and the pendulum kind of swinging. Are tests racist? Should we get rid of SAT, ACT? What, what is CLT's role in all of this? This article is actually kind of in defense of standardized testing. And the, the author kind of leads with that higher education has a standardized testing problem, but it, it's not that it requires tests, that it, that it actually the problem is that it stopped requiring tests. And that high school grades do not always, right? GPA doesn't always provide enough information, especially because of great inflation throughout the pandemic. So interested in your thoughts about about the article and kind of CLT's place in all of this. You know, I, I thought one thing that was also left out here is, is what has happened with grade inflation and how it is completely connected to test optional, right? And, you know, I remember those students, kind of the, the helicopter students and their parents, that, you know, you put a, a one one mark off in the grade book and they're at your desk saying, what, what, what did I do, Mr. Tate? Show me exactly where I messed up here. If all of the pressure is on GPA and there's nothing external to anchor the GPA or to affirm where the student is at academically, it really accelerates grade inflation right now. And on the private school front, this is actually a much bigger challenge because, you know, folks can choose. And there are schools, you know, that I know of in, in, the, in Baltimore People go there because they know it's really easy to get that that 4.5, right? And they're sending their kids there in ninth grade for that reason. And schools that are trying to hold the line, it would be a big relief to them if colleges go back 
to requiring tests. So I think we're just at the beginning as well for seeing some of the consequences. And essentially what we saw happen during COVID was this kind of flip. We were at about 30% of colleges were actually Mm -hmm. test optional even before COVID. In 18 months, we went to 92% test optional. Now, we've already gone back to about 90% test optional. So the pendulum is swinging a little bit back in this direction. But I, I think it's going to continue to accelerate. And what we need are some leaders. MIT already stepped up. And mm-hmm. you know, you, you, you read this and I read this as well. They went back and, and some of their, their, their reasoning, the rationale for why they're requiring a test is precisely because it, it benefits the affluent, well-connected students more than the underprivileged students once you get once you get rid of a test you know and that to have a test is a great equalizer right to access a test prep book to read great books something that almost every student in the country can access no yeah that's that's a really really good point and i and i experienced that myself and i'm sure you did too when you were in the classroom but but the idea that you know testing in itself right it's it's only benefiting kind of the privileged well if you get rid of the testing um, and everyone, great inflation, right? Everyone, I mean, my school had a 5.0 scale because AP was at a 5-point five scale, honors a 4.5 scale, right? So, so all of a sudden, everyone has a 4.0, 4.5, whatever it might be. Well, then you're looking at extracurriculars. Well, what if you're more affluent, yeah. you know? Do you have more opportunities to get to certain extracurriculars? You know, if you, if you don't live in poverty, do you have more time to go out and volunteer, right? All these things that then become more of a factor when you when you get rid of the test. So obviously it's it's a bit more complex, but but the case that that the article was making, especially about MIT, is that if you really just want to look at diversity, right, then they said that the, the first class after they reinstituted SAT ACT back at MIT was actually the most quote unquote diverse class that they've ever ever accepted. So I have to mention that of course the article totally fails to mention CLT. And so if CLT yeah. had been mentioned, Jeremy, where, where do you think it would, would fit and, and what's kind of, you know, what are some lessons for, for CLT and, and other colleges that have embraced CLT? Yeah, I, I wasn't shocked, Soren. I wish, I wish I could say I was. I mean, this is after even the Wall Street Journal editorial board came out, huge supporters uh, of CLT and having this third option, understanding that this does have an impact on, on curriculum, what happens in the classroom? We always say here at CLT, the testing ends up driving the, the curriculum as well. I, I do think over time, even if, if, if kind of mainstream higher ed you know, doesn't love what CLT stands for, doesn't get the whole classics thing, I do think as more and more students and families and school districts opt to CLT, it's going to be increasingly hard to leave out of the conversation. So that, that's our, our future hope. And uh, we, we need to make sure uh, that we get in all those articles in the future. Awesome. Wonderful. Well, before I let you go, I, of course, got to ask you, I know we, you, you recently finished finished a book by Russell Kirk, and I would love to kind of get your get your thoughts on it, share that with our audience if, you know, someone wants a, oh, a book Oh, man. Yes. You know, Soren, I, I, and ha- have you read this already? I, I went to Hillsdale. I think everyone that's gone to Hillsdale has read The Conservative <laughs> Mind. Yes. All right. The Conservative <laughs> Mind. So a month ago, Dr. Angel Adams Farm, our board president, she says, hey, I really think we should go to this 70th anniversary, the Russell Kirk Center of the conservative mind. I say, great. I've heard of this book. I've seen quotes from the book. And I, I go there and the whole night I'm having conversations and I'm thinking everybody I'm talking to has read this book at least once and I've never read the book. So I, I dug in. I, I did an audible store and I did, I did kind of cheat, but it's I okay. listened to a lot of it more than once. And a couple of the, the takeaways for me, one is just that um, in some ways, he's responding to what I would call kind of like a reactionary kind of conservatism, 
which is both within the academy and outside of the academy. And essentially, reactionary conservatism is like, you know, these, these liberals taking our traditions and our customs away and whatnot. It's, it's upset. It's not visionary and it's not institutional. It's not institution built. A foundational rooted conservatism is, is rooted in a commitment to timeless things. And in fact, this is kind of an overarching theme of the book and especially the last 20 pages. He really hammers this home. And one of the quotes that I love so much, he says, you know, there, there are kind of two kinds of people, those who are defending timeless things and those who are tearing them down. And I thought, man, what a great way to focus our work here at CLT and the work of the whole movement. This whole movement is about building and defending timeless things in an age when a lot of people want to rip them down. I can't recommend it highly enough. It it is a book that really, really will change you, I think, in how you view history. He essentially traces it from the end of the French Revolution, Edmund Burke, all the way through T.S. Eliot, where now I'm digging into Eliot's sort I've done the wasteland like four times since finishing The Conservative Mind. And it's just an incredible long uh, poem. So I'd recommend that as well. Wow, amazing. Well, and, and thanks to you, Jeremy, for, for your leadership. I think you're absolutely right. The the tearing down is easy, right? I think what CLT is doing, aligning with some of the thought leaders in this movement is to cast a positive vision for, for, for recapturing education. What what should it look like? What did it once look like? And bringing it to 21st century. So so kudos to you and, and of course, our team at CLT for kind of being being some of the leaders in that in that movement. Jeremy, a pleasure as always. I know you're just across from me in the other office, but it's always good to chat <laughs> with you and look forward to episode hey, four here. I love, I love doing these, these, these conversations. So thanks so much, brother. Appreciate you.